0: take God's Word, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, We're in a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 16, indicate His assumption that His disciples will pray as a matter of habitual practice. Now, the context uh, and setting for these words that we read this morning... Are one of warnings about prayer. How then shall we pray? Jesus answers this question and he says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Next slide. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their offenses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. In the first century... Jews looked to the priest pertaining to those things that uh, had to do with the sacrifices in the temple. But by this time, beyond the temple, which was the primary place where people from all over the world would make pilgrimages to come worship at certain times of the year, you had around, even in the city of Jerusalem and other places, a number of different outposts where people would come to worship and these were the synagogues now whereas they looked to the priests for instruction on those things pertaining to the animal sacrifices and those things that were appropriate in the worship of God in the temple they looked to their rabbis and to the sages for instruction on matters that pertain to how do you go about fulfilling the requirements of Torah the law and at this time Jesus was leading a group of people, a group of men. They were known as his disciples. He called them to himself and he said, follow me. And as their rabbi, as their teacher, it well fell upon Jesus to explain to them, what does it mean to carry out and fulfill Torah? What does this look like? Now he says, follow me. So what he does is more than just teach them with words, what he does is he gives them a living example. And so their rabbi, as he begins to teach them, he starts to talk to them about the basic tenets of Judaism. And one of those basic tenets is that the Jews were supposed to pray at certain times of the day and in certain forms. The central prayer of Jewish liturgy was the Amidah and I'm going to make several references to that in this message this morning so let me spell it out for you a-m-i-d-a-h and I recommend that you fact check me by going and googling Amidah sometime this week and uh, you can follow along with why I'm making this connection to this prayer this morning because this was a very common prayer it was a common everyday prayer the Jews said it uh, once a day, they said it at, at noon uh, during their worship services, and so they were to pray three times a day. And there was this Amidah prayer that they prayed, and uh, it 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 has grown in length over time, but it it was it practiced as early as maybe the fifth century BC. So we know that it was in existence by the time of Jesus, and so in the first century. Uh, Jesus is talking to them about prayer. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up to you is because when you look at the Lord's Prayer and you examine it closely and then you look at the Amidah Prayer, what you find is that Jesus' prayer perfectly mirrors the order of the Amidah Prayer. So when Jesus prays this prayer, he is not giving them a new prayer. What he is doing is he is giving them a shortened version of the Amidah prayer. And this was a prayer that they prayed at noon every day as they gathered together for worship either in the temple or out in the sanctuary. So here you are, you have, uh, in effect, Jesus is saying to them with these words, he's saying, "Uh, you already know how to pray, just pray. Well, that's a word the church needs to hear today, right? You know how to pray. Just pray. There's not a special formula. There are not magical words that you say. Just pray. And in Matthew 6, what we find, though, is the emphasis in his teaching is not so much on the content of the prayer as it is on authenticity. How then shall we pray? First of all, we're to pray with an intelligent understanding of prayer. We notice this in verses 7 and 8 and also in verses 11 through 13 that Jesus prefaces his words with this, uh, uh, on prayer with these words of instruction and the words of instruction begin this way. He says in verse 7, you must not be like the Uh, Verse 5 says, let's not be like the hupokritas, but he says in verse 7, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles. So he begins and he warns against this meaningless repetition in prayer. And his words indicate one who babbles or stammers meaningless sounds. Then as now, this is characteristic of pagan worship. I see another connection though in light of what we understand about Jesus' teaching on prayer and that is that these disciples were familiar with prayer and they had a rote prayer that they prayed every day at noon. Now you multiply that out seven days a week and 52 weeks a year and year upon year upon year you're reciting a memorized prayer. And what came to mind is that scene in uh, Peanuts where Charlie Brown's teacher, whenever she speaks, it's... I may have just morphed a little bit over there into some Peter Frampton, but I don't know. So anyway, you have these words that they're saying, and these words are compounded over time. And it brings to mind a message that the prophets have sounded centuries before this time the lessons that God had sent to them had not gone very far. We remember the charge that the prophet brought against God's people in Isaiah 29, verse 13, was this. These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. It's not the content of the prayer. It's the authenticity of the prayer. You could pray multiple times a day. You could use all the right words. And somehow, there's not a connection to the heart. And this was grievous to God. Now, by contrast, we do know that there is a meaningful repetition in prayer. Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed the same prayer. It was the same brief prayer. Obviously, by comparison there, we understand that there's a great difference in much speaking and much praying. In fact, I would submit to you that the prayer... Please, God, help me, is an effective prayer if it is prayed with reverence and insincerity. But we are also to pray with meaningful recognition. Looking at the eighth verse, he says, Your Father knows what you need before you even ask him for it. Now, someone might say that, you know, well, what's the purpose of asking? If he already knows I need it, and he wants what's best for me, why doesn't God just give that to me? Is because what kind of relationship with you and your wife, if you and your wife know exactly what each other are thinking and what each other need. By the way, you ever go out to eat? Where do you want to go to eat? Well, I don't care. You pick. And you make a suggestion, you say, well, I don't want Mexican. (laughs) I thought you said me pick. But anyway, you you know where I'm going with this? The reason why we communicate is because you don't have a relationship unless there's communication. And communication in prayer is two ways. It's not just me talking to God, it's God also speaking to me. And prayer is not the instruction of God concerning our needs. This is what Jesus is saying. We're not informing God of what our needs are when we come to him in prayer. What we're doing in prayer is we are instructing ourselves at the point of dependence. That's what prayer reminds us. And Jesus says because he's God, he's not ignorant. And because he's our father, well, he's not hesitant. And so in verses 11 through 13, Jesus says there in the prayer, God will give us our daily bread. He'll give us what we need. God will forgive our sin. God will deliver us from temptation and deliver us from the tempter. We need to ask. Later, Jesus himself will proclaim In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So first of all, when we come to God in prayer, and Jesus is teaching on authentic prayer, the first thing he says to us is we must pray with an intelligent understanding of prayer. And secondly, we're to pray with the concern for the priorities of God. Notice what he says in verse 9. What are the priorities of God? What should I pray? we're to pray for the sanctity of God's name. It starts in verse 9. Your name be honored as holy. God's name represents his person. It represents his character. It represents all God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. And the first concern of the praying Christian is that God himself be recognized precisely for who he is. He is a holy God who is wholly other from us. He is a father, but he is a father who is in heaven. He is not just the big man upstairs. He's not just a buddy-buddy. He is holy God. We are to pray that all the world will worship Him as the angels worship Him around His throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're to pray that God's nature be recognized for what it is at all times and in all places and in all means. But also we're to pray for the sovereignty of God's kingdom. It says in verse 10, Your kingdom come. The central concern of Jesus, in fact, It tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus came preaching, what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. And we studied early on as we began this series that whenever he uses this term, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, what he's talking about is he's talking about in the grand scheme of things, the rule and reign of God over his universe. But in microcosm, where you and I come into play, it's the rule and reign of God in our hearts. Now, this was Jesus' message. This is Jesus' primary concern. If the kingdom of God is Jesus' primary concern, is it my primary concern? Because if it's a primary concern of Jesus, it ought to be a primary concern to me. but how often is it? God's kingdom means his kingly rule in the hearts of all people. It's a kingdom with subjects, but it doesn't have any boundaries. We're living in a time between Jesus' first appearing and his second appearing. The kingdom was introduced when Jesus came. He came preaching the kingdom of God. There's a sense in which the kingdom has always existed. God has always ruled over his universe. And then he sent his son into the world and he came preaching the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. One day he is coming and it will be fulfilled on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to pray that in this interim period in between his first coming and his second coming, We are to pray that His will be done on earth as willingly, as completely, as earnestly, as sincerely as it is done in heaven around the throne of God. And then we're to pray for the service of God's will. Your will be done. I I suppose there are contexts where a person reaches a point where <clears throat> your will be done is kind of, a, kind of a resignation of defeat. But not in the words of Jesus. <clears throat> your will be done is a battle cry. Your will be done. And when I pray this, I should pray this personally. Your will be done by me. It's useless for me to pray that God's will be done in the world at large if it does not first include me. I myself want to lead the charge in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what he says. God's will is to be done comparatively. We're to pray for that day when the perfect will of God will be done immediately and constantly and willingly on earth as it is around the throne in heaven. Now, the Amidah prayer that I mentioned earlier includes the same priorities as the Lord's prayer. And this prayer also appears over in Luke chapter 11. The context is different, though. In Matthew chapter 6, the teaching is about authenticity in prayer. And in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus teaches there, the disciples have had, Lord, teach us to pray. brief background about that question, okay? We're not going to dwell on it, but briefly, it was the rabbi's responsibility to teach his disciples how to pray in accordance with Torah, the law. When his disciples come to him and they ask the question in Luke chapter 11, the question, if I can put it this way, is, what is the minimum we can pray and meet the requirements? I mean, we want to pray according to Torah. What then should we pray? And that's the context of Luke chapter 11. There is one aspect of this prayer, though, of Jesus' that diverges from that of the Amidah prayer. One thing that is completely unique to Jesus is the phrase, "As we have forgiven our debtors." Now thanks to archaeology, there are people out there who did do nothing but dig around in the dirt, and archaeologists have discovered a copy of the Amida prayer that dates back to the first century BC neither in that prayer or any other versions of the Amidah prayer does the phrase, as we also have forgiven our debtors appear. This is a radical teaching that Jesus introduces here. And why doesn't it appear in the Hebrew prayer? Because in Hebrew consciousness... One would not ask that. To the Hebrews' way of thinking, forgiveness is God's work. It's not man's work. Forgiveness is something that God does. In Judaism, the focus is on, God, would you forgive me? God, God forgive me when I ask for forgiveness appropriately. God, forgive me when I do not. Now, just to kind of play this out. In the Hebrew way of thinking, the Hebrew would think of Trey Stevens. And when they think of Trey Stevens, he would think or he would say to himself, I hope God forgives Trey. I hope Trey asks God for forgiveness. And if Trey has offended me in some way, well, that matter, you see, is between Trey and God. One of the most scandalous things about Jesus' teachings is that God invites us into the forgiveness process. This was radical. Radical. It was not part of the rabbinical teaching in Jesus' day. I said that when Jesus is teaching here, what we are to do if we are to learn from him is that we are to pray with an intelligent understanding of prayer, but also we are to pray with a consciousness of the priorities of God. What is a priority with God? That's what Jesus is stating here. And it's not just a side note. It's a central idea. It's a primary focus of God. It's a primary focus because what Jesus is saying to us is forgiveness is a part of the process whereby our lives are changed. When I forgive others, my life is changed. And without that, I remain unchanged. Isn't that the focus of the Sermon on the Mount? What What was Jesus saying? Remember, we looked at all those places in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it is said, but I say unto you. What's the point of all that? You know the right words. You know Torah. You know what it says. The Pharisees, the scribes, they knew it verbatim. But their lives had not been changed by it. Jesus said Torah was always intended to change our hearts. Isn't that what God is after? And he says, I am inviting you into the forgiveness process because forgiveness will change you. This was radical. And this was one of the things that Jesus condemned about the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees!' hypocrites! "'You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean.'" The gospel changes us from the inside out. And if you were paying attention in Tom's prayer, Tom's prayer was giving us that teaching from Scripture that talks about the righteousness of God in Christ being put to our account. We're not trying to earn our salvation. Jesus did that for us. Glory, hallelujah, but Jesus is not talking about justification by faith here. Jesus is talking about kingdom citizens, those who are in the kingdom. What does that look like? Now that Jesus has changed my life, how should my life look? And Jesus says, let me show you. This is how a changed life looks. Now there are two halves to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, starting in Matthew 5, verse 3, and going through almost the end of chapter 7, there are two halves to the Sermon on the Mount. The first half is about correctly interpreting Torah. And the second half is about correctly applying the interpretation to our lives. Now, as you may recall in our introductory message in our Follow Me series... We studied the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. There are eight Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, through Matthew 5, verse 10. And in that teaching, you recall, I suggested, or I proposed, that we read the Beatitudes as a Hebrew chiasm. Chiasm. Now, when the Hebrews would write, what they would do is that they would write verses where they complemented one another. So, you might have A, B, A, B, or you might have A, B, B, A. And so, when looking at the Beatitudes as a Hebrew chiasm, what you would do is you would start with the outside of the message and work your way to the center. So if the first beatitude matches up with the eighth beatitude. And then work your way to the middle. So that numbers four and four and five are a companion to one another. Now if I didn't make this clear to you then, I will state it clearly now. There is no concrete evidence or definitive, let me put it there, no definitive evidence that the beatitudes are a chiasm. I, I will admit to that. But when studied that way, what it does is it allows us to see the center of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. And the center of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes is found when we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And when we take that message right there in the center of the Beatitudes, given that Jesus is not giving a bunch of disconnected ideas, but he's driving at one main idea. What is that one main idea? It's found in the center. And the central idea is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will show mercy and be shown mercy. Now, let's pause for just a moment to look at that word righteousness in Hebrew. Sadakah. Say that with me out loud. Sadakah. One more time. Sadakah. This is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Now, what we've been taught and what we come to understand is that when we are talking about righteousness, is our understanding of it is that it is that sense of rightness that is the very character of God. And we rejoice and we say hallelujah when we come to 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it tells us that the righteousness of God in Christ has been put to our account. And we just go, praise the Lord. I just love that idea. All that God stands for, all of his rightness has been put to my account. I didn't do it. Jesus did it for me. That's our understanding of it. But in Hebrew, understanding, it carries a nuance. And this is universally true in Judaism, even today, in our understanding of righteousness. In the Hebrew world, the word righteousness means Charity. So that when this word. Sadaka. Is used. To the Jew. It means giving to people in need. Is not something extra that I do. It's just the right. Correct thing for me to do. My money doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. It has been loaned to me. It is only right. Right that I would use that which has been entrusted to me to carry out the purpose which honors God most, and that is to care for those who are in need. Do you see this coming together? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying... Forgiveness is something that I share with others. It doesn't belong to me. God forgave me. I forgive. I'm just doing what honors God, what He wants most, and that is to pass on forgiveness. But speaking of Hebrew chiasms, and I believe I'm on a little bit more solid ground here, when I say that there are many, many scholars who believe, follow this, that the entire Sermon on the Mount is one big Hebrew chiasm. So what would we do? We've got this sermon that begins in chapter 5, it goes through chapter 7. What would we do? We would total up the verses and we would find that if there are 57 verses in the first half and 57 verses in the second half, then what we find is we find the center And what do you think the center is of the Sermon on the Mount? It's Matthew chapter 6. And the dead center of the Sermon on the Mount is verses 12, 13, and 14. And what do those verses say? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. What was the center of the Beatitudes? If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will show mercy and be shown mercy Hello, McFly. What is the center of the Sermon on the Mount? If you forgive others, God will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. My brothers and sisters, The Sermon on the Mount is about people, 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 people are what matter to God. The Sermon on the Mount is not some moral code. It is not some disconnected discourse about a walk just between Jesus and me. If you want to know what it means to be righteous, to follow Jesus, then you will show mercy and you will forgive people just as God has shown you mercy and forgiven you your sins. I want to pause there for just a moment because it's possible for us to know even in our own lives or in the lives of someone we hold close to us that that something evil Has happened to us or to someone we know. And it's hurtful. And you still struggle with it. And maybe you're not talking to anyone about it. Or maybe you've been in counseling for years. And you're still trying to work through it. And that's good. Don't quit. Keep working through it. I wanted to just pause there for a moment to tell you what forgiveness is not. When I forgive someone, I'm not saying that what they did was not evil. That's not what I'm saying when I I forgive someone. I'm not saying, well, that was evil, but that's okay, that doesn't matter. That's not true, that does matter. When I talk about forgiveness, I'm not talking about Instances where there will not be a time where you call the police and report it. I'm not saying that when we're talking about forgiveness that there are not occasions when you need to go to a safe place. There's some sort of abuse that's going on and you don't need to stay in the situation. You need to get out of that situation. Now, having said that, I want us all to understand that what has happened in the past has happened. It really did happen. It's in the past. And the only way it moves to the future is if we take it there. Jesus is talking about how is a person changed. And he says they're changed by forgiving others. It won't change the past. The past really did happen. It won't change the past. But glory, hallelujah, according to Jesus, it will change you. Forgiveness unlocks our potential for the future. I don't know about you, but the deeper I go into the sermon, the more I read it, and I've read it for years, but the more I study it, the more I think about it, it doesn't leave me shouting, Hooray! I'm on the right team! I read it now with fresh eyes and in it every time I read it what I see is I I see the heart of God over and over again and I see what God is trying to accomplish here by bringing a kingdom to this world God is saying I want you to be my partner God is looking for partners who will bring kingdom righteousness to earth. Imagine what our world would be if we partnered with God in bringing kingdom righteousness to this world. But there's one more thing that disturbs me and I think it brings us to the jumping off point. Friends, Jesus is not looking for admirers. He's looking for imitators. So I want to ask you this question. are you an admirer of Jesus or an imitator of Jesus let's pray Oh Lord what a wonderful joy it is to hear the gospel message that God forgives that Jesus came to forgive And he died that all sins may be forgiven those who ask God for forgiveness. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus died on the cross and took our sins upon himself. He bore that punishment upon himself. So that through him and through his holy sacrifice acceptable to God, we might be forgiven. And what is more, he came to live inside us when we invited him to save us and to come in and be our Savior and Lord and King and the Holy Spirit dwells within us to open our eyes to spiritual truth so that we may apply it to our lives and by the power of the Spirit by the authority of the Word of God that we might be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. It may be this morning that you're carrying around some hurt that's very deep. You've not talked with anyone about it, but you'd like to just have prayer with one another. We have several here who will be at the front following our worship service this morning. We invite you to come and, and speak with us. And perhaps we can direct you to someone else who can give you additional help if needed. But we'd like to pray with you, like to help you work through that. But the most important decision anyone in this room will make today is what will you do with Jesus? And if it's your desire to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord and to know the forgiveness of sin that you need, that we all need. then I invite you, too, to come forward after this service and speak with me. One of our ministers here at the front. And we'd like to pray with you and talk with you about next steps in following Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for uh, speaking to us this morning. Thank you for leading us to this time of decision. And Lord, we just love you for caring so much about us and knowing us so well that you know exactly what we need to hear and when we need to hear it and how we need to hear it. And I thank you this morning that the real teacher was the Holy Spirit. And that while everybody heard me saying the same words, not everybody heard the same message because God was in it. And there was something in God's word that you took, Lord, and I give you praise for it. And everyone in this room can point to that, that thing that you said to them. And, Lord, that won't wash off in the shower. We pray that it will have its full work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.